I was thinking this past week about uh, things that really get us excited and things that make us rejoice. And uh, I think if you were to, to kind of trace back in your life in the last, um, even say six months, what are the things that have made you rejoice? I would dare say that they might be things such as retirement or uh, a significant milestone in a, in a marriage of a certain anniversary. It might be a birthday. It might be the birth of a child. It might be the birth of a grandchild or a great-grandchild. It might be a promotion at work. But there are things that cause us to rejoice and gather around with, with friends and family and, and celebrate a, a certain event that has taken place. I wonder, too, what are the kinds of things that cause us to rejoice spiritually? And I think I'm maybe, uh, in my own, I think these celebrations may be less than the physical celebrations. But what do we celebrate as Christians? Uh, I happen to know the day in in which I became a Christian, and on that day every year I I don't necessarily throw a party or or, uh, gather friends around, but I do rejoice in my heart because I can place a time and a date at which I know I move from darkness into light. Uh, it might be a, a rejoicing in the fact that one of your grandchildren or your spouse became a Christian or that you have um, finally had the victory over a long-standing temptation that you were never able to battle with to success. But it seems like our spiritual rejoicing um, is not often in keeping with our physical rejoicing. I was thinking of this, though, when we came to Acts chapter 11 and for a couple of weeks, I thought, I can't move out of Acts chapter 11 into 12 until we just deal with this one particular verse in a little bit more depth this morning. And if you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. It's one verse that I, I want us to reflect on for the rest of our time this morning. And um, it's uh, the response of the Jews, finally, to the great news that the gospel had gone forth into the world of the Gentiles. In verse 18, it says, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God. Then to the Gentiles also, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They celebrated. They rejoiced in this spiritual um, revival that had taken place in this little town in Caesarea. Father, we do come before you this morning, and as we consider this rejoicing and the cause of this rejoicing, that some had found the fact that there was life in Jesus Christ and that they had repented in a repentance that led to everlasting life. What joy there was. Father, may we grasp a little bit more carefully and a little bit more clearly this morning what it is to repent and why it is so important and what part it plays in the life of, in our spiritual journey. Again, make your book live, I pray. Make your word sustain us and teach us and encourage us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there was great rejoicing. There was great rejoicing as they remembered and as they witnessed and they heard about how God had granted repentance to the Gentiles also, Repentance that leads to life. Jesus talks about this sort of thing, but on a heavenly basis. In Luke chapter 15, there's a series of parables there, two or three which we could read, but I just want to read one, which illustrates this fact from a heavenly perspective. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins, and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, 
and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and she says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. Could you imagine the rejoicing that was taking place in heaven on that day back in in, uh, the early days of the church in Caesarea when Cornelius and his family and his friends entered into eternal life? It must have been deafening in heaven. Imagine this incredibly beautiful truth that the conduct of people on earth can bring about rejoicing in heaven. And that if the angels in heaven rejoice over the repentance of one sinner, ought not we, God's people, to also rejoice when people enter into the kingdom of God? And my prayer has been and will continue to be throughout this week that the halls of heaven will once again echo with rejoicing as the gospel goes forth into our community in a unique way this week. And that we too would rejoice at the end of the week at what God has done. But I wonder within churches and within our own Christian circles if such celebrations are becoming fewer and fewer. I wonder if it feels like we no longer rejoice in what, we ha- in what heaven rejoices in. You know, we realize that things go out of fashion. We realize that things are here today and gone tomorrow. We see this particularly in technology. There's the fad of today and then uh, and three weeks later or three months later, it is now almost a forgotten piece of technology that is obsolete. And unfortunately, those things happen in spiritual circles and in Christian circles. And I wonder if this is what has happened to repentance. If repentance has lost its appeal, if somehow it's gone out of vogue, it's no longer spoken about in churches, it's no longer talked about much in Christian writings. Have we moved past the need for repentance? Is it now an outdated notion? There are times when I want to find my bearings in life and on an issue, and when I do that, I turn to the Word of God. I find the Word of God to be the one thing that doesn't change. I find the Word of God to be the one thing that stands the test of time. I find the Word of God to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. I love the eternal quality of the Word of God because so much around us is temporal. In fact, almost everything around us is temporal. But the Word of God is eternal. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God will last forever. So what does the Word of God have to say about repentance? How would it sort of guide us and direct us as we think about this issue of repentance to wonder whether or not it really has lost its appeal today? And I've just drawn together a few strands of of my own thinking and reflecting on Scripture, and there's a few. And the first one I I, I thought of, well, do we really think repentance matters much to God? And as I thought about that question, I, I went immediately in my head to Acts chapter 17. And at the end of Paul's sermon to the people on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse uh, 30, uh, the times of ignorance, uh, uh, the times of ignorance, God is overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. God commands all men, all people, everywhere to repent. 
It's not an option. It's not a take it or leave it. It's not something that I can say, well, it may be good for you, but it's not good for me. It is a universal declaration of the sovereign king to those who he has created that we need to repent. Because we will stand before the judge one day to give an account for our lives. What do you think the first word of the gospel is? This just sort of uh, caught my attention again because I just you don't think about these sorts of things very often. But, you know, we might think, well, the first word of the gospel is love. We all like love. Or we might say the first word of the gospel is grace. And that would be a wonderful word. But you know that neither of those are the first word of the gospel. The first word of the gospel is repent. As Jesus came to this earth and began his ministry in a public way, as he took his word and his message out to the people, the very first word of his very first sermon was repent. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as you follow the ministry of Christ and you come to the end of the ministry, as he's gathering his disciples around him and he's preparing to leave this earth and go back to be with the Father, do you know what he instructs his disciples to do? Or what he says to them? He says to them, it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all generations beginning in Jerusalem. The beginning of his ministry, repent. The end of his ministry, go throughout all the world and proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins. And you know what his message was in the middle of his ministry to his disciples? As they go out two by two with his authority and with his power? It says they went out and they proclaimed that people everywhere should repent. Loved ones, the gospel is saturated with the necessity and the declaration that we need to repent. So it's commanded by God that all men everywhere repent. It's illustrated by Christ to be one of the most prominent themes of his gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. As I was reflecting on this, have you ever, have you, have you picked up as we've been going through Acts the emphasis on repent? I I was fascinated because I had missed it myself. But as I was thinking about this, I went through the places in Scripture in the book of Acts alone. And we find that Peter, on his first sermon, as the people are gathered together after the Spirit of God has been poured out, and Peter has been speaking to this crowd, and he's been talking to them about about how they have been involved in the putting to death of Jesus Christ. And at the end of it, it says that they were cut to the quick. They were convicted in their hearts. And, and they cry out to Peter, what should we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And then we jump to chapter 3, one chapter later. And again, in the phrase of another sermon, as Peter is preaching, the people come under a deep sense of guilt for their sin. And what does he say to them? He says, repent. And turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
we jump to Acts chapter 5, and there we find that Peter has been thrown into prison because they have been preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ. And at the end of it, they were released because of fear. And as they're being released, they're commanded by the leaders, but you can go, but don't speak anymore about the name of Jesus. And they say, we must obey God and not man. For in Jesus, God gives repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. As the name of Jesus is proclaimed, the message follows suit that repentance is how one enters into a relationship with God through Christ. We jump ahead to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we find there a great move of God in a particular city. And again, the Holy Spirit falls and, and men and women speak in tongues. And there's a particular magician there who's just enthralled by the power that is evident when the Holy Spirit comes upon people. And he thinks to himself, well, I need to buy this. I need to control this. Because if I can do this, I can have whole hordes of people around me. And he's rebuked by Peter. And Peter says to him, repent, therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart might be forgiven. And there's other places in the book of Acts, but you begin to get the picture that at the heart of the gospel, at the good news of the proclamation of the kingdom of God, is this requirement, is this necessity, is this response of repentance. And then fourthly, I think of what the word of God says. It's commanded. It's The beginning, the middle, and the end of the gospel. It's how the church grew and expanded in its early days. But are you aware of the necessity of repentance? I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Beloved, that is strong language. But that is gospel language. Unless you repent, you will perish. That's why we love John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that, beloved, is the word of God. It doesn't matter much what the world says. It doesn't matter much what a preacher might say. It doesn't matter what a Christian author might say. Repentance is not out of vogue. Repentance is still the necessary requirement for entrance in to the kingdom of heaven. But the problem remains for me. Why is there so little discussion of repentance? Why does repentance come up so infrequently in sermons or in books or in conversations that we have with, with those that don't yet know Christ? Well, if the thesis of Carl Menninger's book in 1973 is right, it explains it. Carl Menninger wrote a book back in 1973 called Whatever Became of Sin. It's a brilliant book. He was a prominent psychologist who dealt with hundreds of people. And he concluded in that book, and he presents great evidence for it, how we have ripped the, from our language and from our thinking and from our conversations the very mention of the word sin. But when we take away the word sin, we don't deal with guilt and shame that is still the consequence of sin. And so here we are trying to deal with very real human emotions that are the consequences of sin, but we've taken away the cause of that guilt and shame, and so people are left struggling. 
And I would argue that one could well have written about four years later, follow-up to the book, Whatever Became of Sin, Whatever Became of Repentance. Because, loved ones, sin and repentance go hand in hand. If there is no sin, there is no need of repentance. If we don't speak of sin in the pulpit, we will never call sin to people to repent from sin in the pulpit. If there's no sin in our books, we will never call people to repent of their sin in their books. If there's no sin in the discussions with our families who don't know Christ, we will never call people to repent. They go hand in hand. We live in a dangerous time, beloved. An incredibly dangerous time spiritually. Because the word sin and its, and its actions continues to be pushed to the margins of society. We talk so little of sin. We talk so little of the law. We talk so infrequently of heaven and hell. And tied directly to those issues is the issue of repentance. Do we speak of this with our kids? Do we speak of this with our families? Do we speak of this with our spouses and our friends? Do we talk about these realities? If we don't, there will never be a movement within their heart to deal with the sin that's there. The Bible talks about conversion. Conversion is a single coin that has two signs, uh, sides of a coin. One is repentance, the other is faith. These are biblical words, and we need to understand them. If you're new to church circles and you're still wrestling with stuff, conversion is one of the things that we talk about as Christians. And conversion is simply turning. It's turning from ourselves, from our own ways, and turning towards Christ or turning towards God. And so when we say a person is converted, we say there is a change in the direction of their life. There is a change in the orientation of their life. And there's two sides of this conversion coin. The turning from sin is called repentance. And so when I come to Jesus Christ, the first act of that coming on my part is repentance. And I'm walking this way with my sin, and Christ is at my back, and I turn around, and I turn to Christ. I turn from my sin. The other side of the coin is what we call faith. And that is the turning to Christ. So we turn from our sin through repentance we turn to Christ through faith. That is what we talk about when we talk about conversion. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a renouncing of it. It's a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience of Christ. Repentance is something that occurs in the heart and involves the whole person in a decision to turn from sin. Again, beloved, I say to you, if there is no sin, then what do we repent of? I wonder, too, as I thought about this passage, it says they rejoiced because the Gentiles turned with a repentance that led to life. Is there any other kind of repentance in Christian circles? I think there is. There are false repentance. There is counterfeit repentance. You might say to me, Paul, my, my mind is really troubled and I'm, I'm bothered by what I've done. It's this sort of what Carl Menager talks about. It's the guilt and the shame that comes when we disobey God. Well, there are many examples, both in life and in Scripture, of those who have felt terrible guilt and remorse from their sin, but never repented of it. I think of King Ahab, 
I think of Judas, the betrayer of Christ, who, who betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And at the end of it, when he had betrayed Christ, he was filled with remorse and with shame. But he never confessed his sin. And he did not enter into repentance that leads to life. Just feeling intense guilt and remorse is not repentance. By the same token, there are people who make vows. They get into a real tough spot in life and the circumstances of their life just, you know, back them up in the corner and for some reason when we're in trouble, we call out to God. And for some silly reason when we're in trouble and call out to God, we make vows. Beloved, making a vow is not repentance. Making a vow in certain circumstances that, that if God does this, you will do that is not a repentance of sin. It is just, it's just a, a frustration with your circumstances. And added to that, how many who have made vows in those circumstances, when their life turns around, they say goodbye to God. And they say goodbye to their vows. So loved ones, making a vow does not constitute repentance. Others might say to me, well, Paul, I've given up these sins that I used to commit with a high hand. Trouble is, sometimes people give up one sin and they replace it with another sin. It's just an exchange. And so they've been tormented by one thing in their life and so they give that up. But they haven't given up sin. They've just given up that sin. I know people sometimes too who Give up a sin for a season because it's not convenient. It won't help them get a job. It won't help them get a a spouse. And so they just tuck a sin away for a little while until a later time. And then they indulge when the consequences are not evident to them. Feeling bad about sin, making a vow to obey God, and even shifting my participation in sin is not repentance that leads to life, loved ones. It's a false repentance. What is true repentance then? When, when Peter talks about what had taken place in Cornelius' household, what, what, is, what does that look like? Uh, these are some of the things that I wanted to start singing that Mary Poppins song. These are a few of my favorite things. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be surprised at how many songs go through my head as I'm speaking. And unfortunately, I share a few of them with you from time to time. But these are a few of the things that constitute biblical repentance. And, you know, we separate them out so we have an understanding, but they can all go together. I think the first thing about repentance is there has to be a recognition of sin. A sight of sin. How do we repent or say we're sorry for something if we don't recognize we've done anything wrong? And so we have the prodigal son, for example, who has been um, sinful and walked away from his father and given his life to wanton living. And finally, it says one day as he's in that situation, he came to himself. I think what that means is he recognized how foolish he had been. And how sinful his actions were. We think of King Nebuchadnezzar who had been warned by Daniel that he had been filled with pride. And as he looked at his kingdom, he puffed himself up and he says, my, what a good king am I. And Daniel says to him, look out, Nebuchadnezzar. Because God is going to deal with your heart. 
And we read that for seven seasons, which I believe is probably seven years, he crawled around like an animal. His hair grew long. His fingernails grew like claws. Until one day he came to his senses. I think that is until one day he recognized his sin of pride. Do you remember that story in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, of two individuals who have gone up to the house to pray? One of them was a Pharisee and a tax collector. And as he stood before God in front of all, he says, I thank you, God, that I give of my this and I give of my that and I fast and I do this. And I thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. And then we read what that guy over there says. And all he could say as he beat his breasts was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which one of those went home righteous? That man in the corner. So repentance, beloved, begins with a sighting of sin. It begins with a recognition. And certainly, I don't think we ever come to realize the full nature of our sin. But there is a point in which we all of a sudden realize that I have offended the Almighty God. The second thing that follows close on the heels with that is a sorrow for sin. There's a lot of people that are aware of the sin in their life, but it doesn't bother them. They're quite happy to go about in their sin. Zechariah 12.10, as they look ahead to Christ's death, that prophet says, When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. A woman may as well expect to have a child without labor pains as one can expect to have repentance without sorrow. I don't know if we understand sorrow for our sin. I don't think we think about it enough. I don't think we understand the offense that our sin is towards God. And the only way that I sometimes understand the offense of my sin towards God is when I recognize how much my actions and words hurt my wife. And I wish I saw that more often, but there are times when I have seen her, her body language and she has expressed to me the deep hurt of stuff that I have done. And at that point, I get a glimpse of how I have hurt. Do we ever get those glimpses of how we have hurt our God? Of how we have crushed His heart? Of how we have grieved His spirit? Of how we have caused Him such disrespect and pain and blasphemed His name? Scripture talks about many ways in which we, we repent. And I, I wonder of these out loud with you. Joel talks about rending our garments, and not, uh, not just our garments, but our hearts. We find the people of Nineveh, Nineveh tearing their garments, putting sackcloth and ashes on their head. And, 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 and other places we read of people pull, pulling out their hair. All of signs of inward, outward signs of inward sorrow. What do we do today to demonstrate our inward sorrow? Do we ever expect our children to demonstrate an inward repentance that's reflected in outward behavior? What do we do? Oh God, I'm sorry. Yeah. And off we go. And life goes on. Beloved, I don't know what it should look like. Frankly, I think sometimes I'd be in sackcloth and ashes every Sunday I got up here if I always reflected outwardly what God is doing in my heart inwardly. 
But beloved, we need to have some way of expressing our sorrow for our sin. Another area that I think comes in a line, and I'll just, just say this so quickly, is confession of sin. We spent a number of weeks looking at Psalm 51. Um, and I, I should probably say this, that there's sort of a twofold nature to repentance. And it troubles me because I believe followers of Christ get hung up on the first one and forget the second one. There is the initial repentance, which is part of conversion, which is where for the first time we are given a sight of our sin and we feel sorrow for our sin and we, we repent of that sin before God. Unfortunately for so many Christians, that's the first and the last time they repent. Beloved, repentance is a daily, I could say hourly activity. Because I don't know about you, but I continue to sin. And I continue to need to take before God my sorrow for the sin that's expressed in my life. So we're talking primarily about conversion repentance here. So it's a confession of sin. I have sinned. Often we've heard people say that I am sorry are the three most difficult words in the human language. Frankly, I think I have sinned are probably more difficult to say than I am sorry. Because I am sin, I have sinned is taking ownership for your stuff. Saying I have sinned is saying is is self-accusing myself. Saying I have sinned is necessary though. And I wonder with parents if we need to teach our kids how to repent. So that at the time when the Spirit of God comes knocking on their hearts, they recognize themselves for who they are and their actions for what they are, and they too can say, I have sinned. What about a hatred of sin? I think of this from time to time. Um, And I guess, you know, this is self-confession time this morning. I don't know if I hate sin enough. And I guess the evidence is in my life, because if I hated sin more, I would commit less of it. Ezekiel says, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. If a man loathes that which makes his stomach sick, much more will he loathe that which makes his conscience sick. There are many food allergies and food um, things that people wrestle with today, and some are very serious. Some are on gluten-free diets because if they eat gluten, it will cause tremendous distress for them. Some people have incredible peanut allergies and just the touching of a doorknob that another kid who has had peanut butter touches and then they touch their lips can bring about a shock in them that leads to death. I would dare say that maybe some of them hate peanuts. Others hate gluten because they fear for its physical impact on them. Do we hate sin? Do we fear what it does to our lives? The impact it has on our relationships and our consciences. And then there's a turning from sin. This is the last, and there could be more. Um, but repentance means, and I demonstrated, you walk one way and you turn around and you go the other way. There is great rejoicing in the Thessalonica church as the people turn from idols to the living God. That's what repentance means. It means I give up that way of behaving and acting and thinking and speaking because I recognize it for what it is and I turn around 
and I begin to take on this way of thinking and acting and speaking. And so it is a turning. Get rid of your sins and leave all iniquity behind you. We find in Job. So this is, beloved, what the Jews rejoiced in. And it may seem heavy, and, you know, I, I, part of me is sorrowful for that, but part of me says, I don't care. Because unless we come to the point where we are convicted of our sin, we will never see the need of repentance. And unless you repent, you will perish. I was thinking of some of the dangers of putting off repentance and You may be aware of them, but do you really know the power and the poison of sin? Is it really your slave, or are you its slave? Do you know that the more you sin, the harder your heart becomes? The more you eat butter and bacon the greater the risk that your arteries are going to clog. The more you, well, you know, the more you sin, the harder your heart becomes. What guarantee do you have that you will ever hear the gospel again? It is a gift of grace that we are all here this morning. God has brought us together by his gracious providence so that we might hear the gospel. Do you ever know that you will be in church again? Do you ever know that you will hear the gospel again? Do we know what tomorrow holds? Can we be assured of another opportunity to repent? Some people, and I've heard this far too often, say to me, well, you know, Paul, I'll repent and I'll make my life right when this or when this. And many say, and I've heard it said too many times, and once would be enough, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, then I'll repent. I say to you, how do you know you'll have time on your deathbed? How do you know you'll have your wits about you on your deathbed? How do you know you'll even care about repentance on your deathbed? That's why Peter and the gospel writers say that repentance is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. And it's a gift that we are made aware of by the working of the Spirit, which we see in Acts 10 and 11, and through the Word of God. That is, the Spirit takes the Word of God and works in our hearts and brings us to the point where we say, God, I need you. I'm sorry for my sins. Does the thought of repentance being a gift trouble us? It ought not. It ought to make our hearts rejoice. Should we not be thrilled that God has provided a way of salvation for us and we don't have to make it ourselves? We don't have to find it ourselves? Why does it offend God that some, or offend us that God should invite us to salvation? I've never been offended when somebody has invited me to a party or a celebration that they're having. And frankly, I don't always know what I need. And sometimes I need to have what God tells me I need. And so he offers me the gift of repentance. It's an act of incredible mercy that God compels us to consider our situation 
and his gracious provision for us. What kindness of God. That he doesn't just knock once, but he knocks again and again and again and again. You know what Romans 2 says, don't you? It's your kindness that leads me to repentance. Kindness in spite of my rebellion. Kindness in spite of my stubbornness. Kindness in spite of my rejection. It's your kindness that leads me to repentance, O God. He doesn't force himself on me or you, but he lets me hear his voice calling me. You know, we have a hard heart, but God softens it. We have shut our ears to his voice, but he allows us to hear him calling us. We resist again and again, but he sends his sweet spirit to draw us towards him. Are you struggling today to receive the good gifts of God? Struggle no more. He says to us very clearly, if you want faith, ask for it. I'll give it. If you want grace, ask for it. I'll give it. If you want repentance, ask for it. I'll give it. If you want eternal life, ask for it. I'll give it. For no good thing does he withhold from those who ask. Today is the day of salvation. It matters, beloved, that we talk about repentance. For it's a gift that God gives to us by which we enter into eternal life. And so I plead with you, if you have never yet responded to what Christ offers you, if you've never yet seen the seriousness of your sin, today, And I have prayed and will continue to pray today when you feel the deep conviction of your sin. Don't ignore it. Don't run from it. But turn and repent and enter into everlasting life.